0: Die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And just my whole life was flashing before me, and all these things I still wanted to accomplish. And I was still planning my race season. And here I was being told I had cancer. And it was, I just remember my dad totally trying not to cry, not to shed any tears, because in that moment, he knew he needed to be the rock. And he just turned to me and was like, Jamie, remember a mustard seed. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I can't like (laughs) comprehend anything. I'm just like, I don't want to die, dad. And he just said, the mustard seed. And I was like, why are you bringing up a mustard seed? And this was like, since I was a kid, we've always talked about the mustard seed and having, you know, that if you have that size of faith that you can move a mountain. And he had to remind me of that because I was spiraling. And I, and it was like this instant, like, I just stopped. I stopped in my tracks and this peace overcame me. And I was like, you're right, dad, you're right. I just have to have faith.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Rooted in Christ podcast. I am your host, Eric Stevens, and I'm the founder of Redwood Christian Ministries. Hope everyone out there is doing well today. With me on the show today, I have a very special guest. I have Paralympic champion, two-time Paralympic medalist, cancer survivor, 2014 ESPY award winner, mother of four, Jamie Whitmore with me on the show today. Jamie, how are you doing today?
0: I'm fantastic.
1: I guess I should say how you're doing tonight because it is 9 p.m. where I am.
0: <laughs> it was an easy day today, so I didn't have a lot on my plate. So I'm feeling fantastic, even though it is the evening.
1: Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking time out from your busy schedule with your four children, your husband. Thank you so much for just hopping on here just to share a little bit about your life story with us today.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely my pleasure. I love doing this kind of stuff. I love sharing my testimony and all of the things that I've been able to overcome and how I've been able to be successful.
1: Well, with that being said, then I'm going to just, we're going to just dive right into it. So let's talk about your background a little bit. So where are you from? and Where'd you grow up?
0: I am from Somerset. I currently reside in Somerset, California, and I am from Sacramento, California.
1: Okay. And so growing up, were you always a Christian? Were you always following Christ? Talk about that a little bit, like what your journey with God was like.
0: I grew up in the church from since I was a baby. And I can remember the day that I accepted Jesus. I was six years old. We were driving along. And I think there had been like a lot of accidents on the freeway or whatever, because I had parents that were divorced. So my dad was taking me back to my mom's. And all of a sudden, it was just like, God, uh, I need you to accept Jesus now. And he just walked me through this whole thing, had asked me all these questions. And for whatever reason, <laughs> in that moment, my dad felt it was very important that I was saved and yeah. being six. And so that was just something to him. And nothing really changed. All of a sudden, I it like, woo, life doesn't get easier. But it was one of those t- turning points to who do I really want to be when I grow up and what kind of person do I want to be? And I started realizing that I was huge into sports. And a lot of the athletes out there didn't represent Christ well. You'd have football players, I would be like, Oh, I just want to thank God. But then in in the they'd make a touchdown and it and they would show both. And it was across the board in so many different kinds of sports. And it was in that kind of defining moment that I was like, God, I want to be an athlete and I want to be an athlete that races for you. And I want to make sure that the glory goes to you and that it's not about me. And so that was the start of me figuring out what sport I could be good at. And that's what I would pray for. I would be like, God, please help me find the sport that I will be good at. And let me tell you, I tried a whole lot of sports before I found ones where I was successful.
1: So sports was always a part of your life. So what sports did you play throughout throughout grade school, high school? So what's, what sports did you try?
0: So I was in swimming for about five years competitively and the coach was super aggressive and like hardcore and I just didn't like that. So then I tried team sports, so fast pitch softball and volleyball and realized I was not a team player and it wasn't because it was mostly because I didn't like the pressure of like I didn't want to disappoint teammates and I also didn't want to get mad at teammates because these gals were my friends. So I was like team sports are not for me. So a friend talked me into running in junior high, which then evolved to cross country and track and field in high school, which led to a scholarship in college. And right around then I was looking into kind of multi-sports. So that's where I got into triathlon right when I graduated. Then I met my ex-husband back then who was huge into mountain biking. And he was just like, you need to try mountain biking. And honestly, within two years, I went from being a beginner mountain biker to a pro and then there was this thing called Xterra. And that's where off-road tri- triathlons began for me. And that's where I truly found my niche. And I had such an amazing career.
1: So let's dive into that a little bit. But for anyone who doesn't know, what is if what is a triathlete and then a triathlon? And what goes into even training for something like that?
0: So a triathlon is basically three sports. You swim, you bike, and you run. And my specific niche was off-road triathlon's called Xterra. So we swam, we mountain biked and then you ran on trails. So it was a completely different world but but yet the same world and it's a, it was always about balancing what days you would swim, what days you'd run, what days you'd bike. And obviously the most important, the biggest chunk of your race was cycling. So that's where I spent a lot of time training and then running, which was like my strength. And then the swimming, which I had done when I was a kid was my weakest link. So it was like, no matter how much I swam, I never really got that much faster, but I hung in there. I came out in the top 10, did what I needed to do, and then would make my move on the bike and the run. But, and there are several different kinds of, of triathlons. You can have very long course called Ironman. You can have half Ironmans, you have Olympic distance, and then you have sprint. So it's a big world out there for triathlon.
1: (laughs) I cut my workout short today. I'm really feeling guilty right now. I feel like I have just absolutely failed in my day today. (laughs) So. You said you made a, a career out of this, so let's just dive into it. So after you were playing sports, high school, college, how do you, how does someone then make a career out of, out of these sports and become an Olympic athlete?
0: It's funny because I honestly, like I went to school to be in, in be a police officer or be like a FBI agent, us customs, us Marshal. Like I was heavy into, I'm going to be in, into solving crimes, <laughs> And then one day I'm sitting on this, on my dad's couch, I had come home, graduated and Barb Lindquist was being interviewed talking about, cause she was a collegiate swimmer and she's really good and talking about how she was trying to get her run to be stronger. And she was getting there on the bike. And I was so fascinated and she was also a Christian and I was super fascinated by like her ability to do these three things. And so I was like, yeah, I want to give that a try. And I just did. I just started doing them. I started doing quite well. I had a lot of top three finishes, but it was the mountain biking that where I excelled at the highest level. And let me tell you, the first three years, it was like sleeping in airports, sleeping on a, in a car, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch and dinner, I there are tons of stories of others that have slept in their bike bags. And the stories go yeah. on to where it was. it was a lot of taking everything that I had earned to just get to the next race. And I want to say right around after about two years of doing that, like I had risen to the top quite quickly. So all of a sudden my results started getting everybody's attention. And then that's when the sponsorship started coming. Plus in Xterra, you can win prize money. So there was always that, well, the more I win, the more money I can earn and I can keep doing this. And then that just evolved to a seven-year career where there was one gal and myself who had the biggest rivalry and it just We had a lot of TV coverage. It was a huge family that no matter where I went, people knew who I was. And that absolutely helped in elevating that career to be the highest that it could be. So somehow I paid the bills doing that. (laughs)
1: So let's talk about, so you, let's talk about some of the success in your career and then the, the some of the adversity that you faced. So I'm going to let you tell that story. So to whatever degree you want to dive into that, let's talk about how, cause you said you reached the height very quickly. So let's talk about those heights and let's just talk about what took place during that time. And then after that time.
0: Okay, right. I'd say, yeah, very quickly. My first race in x I was second female overall, wow. my, my second race. I had or second race there was a crash but the third race I won. And then that year it was just propelling to I had just won. Every race I entered I was first or second, first or second. And there was a lot of up and ups and downs with that because when I'd stand on the podium like the first thing I'd say it was, I just want to thank God. And it was always recognizing that I he had gifted me this. And I, and then I thanked my family. And while it was an individual sport, I was there because of the gifts God had given me and my family who had supported me. But sometimes you get caught up in the desire to win because now you're paying bills and you like that. Taste of success. And sometimes that was the struggle, was really trying to be grounded in who I was in my faith and knowing that I was out there for him and not for me. And so sometimes that got in the way. And let me tell you, God would knock me off that pedestal and (laughs) I'd have a mechanical or I'd come in second place. And it was always that gut check of who's in control. It's not me. And I want to say, after seven years of just like up and down. That's when I was diagnosed with cancer. It was a really rare form of cancer. It was a lot of pain. And there were many nights of me just like screaming in pain, trying to figure out what was wrong, going to specialists after specialists and pretty much nobody really knowing what was wrong with me. And to the point that I was completely bedridden, I couldn't even get out of bed. And my body was completely starting to like, atrophy, like the leg that was being affected was going into atrophy. And I just, I remember the pain. It was just so much pain in trying to figure out what was wrong. And we discovered it was cancer. And this will go, do, I'm like, do you want to ask you the question about the mustard seed, or should I go right into that one? <laughs> no,
1: I tell this stories whatever you want. Like I am it's, I've heard this before and I, every time I hear your story, like I get, I'm just like engulfed by it. So degree you, you want to share, okay. go, go right ahead. Cause they, they did a few, you had a few misdiagnoses before they found yes. out it was cancer. Is that correct?
0: Yes. So kid you not like, I had been poked and prodded. I had x-rays, CT scans, MRIs, and literally people scratching their head going, I don't know what's wrong with you. And it was always because they were either too high or too low and they were just missing, which is crazy because this tumor was like the size of a grapefruit. But how it was growing, it was going growing through my pelvic bone. So there was a little bit showing in the front and a little bit showing in the back, and it was just up against all kinds of organs and everything. But how I found out was I was in my hospital room, I had finally gone to UCSF. And this is after having people like stick needles in me and do all those X-rays, MRI, CT scans. And finally, these people were like, We're gonna try to figure out what's wrong with you. So they had, they had figured out there was some sort of a tumor in there at this point and didn't a needle biopsy, but nobody said anything to me. Nobody told me what the results were from that biopsy. I just had two doctors walk in one day and start telling me my options. Here, if you have to do chemo, here's your options. If you have to do radiation, here's your options. And I cannot tell you anything past the fact that this one was a chemo doc and this one was a radiation doc, because all that kept going through my head was like, do I have cancer? Why are these guys in here talking to me about these options? They only talk if you have cancer. And then they stopped talking. And I heard the one say, so do you have any questions and I had to ask him the one question that I did not want the answer to. And I looked at him and said, do I have cancer? And the radiation doc was like looking at his watch going, I have another appointment. And he wow. and he left. Wow. And the poor chemo doc is, and I just like the floodgates opened. And I was already tearing up in the eyes because I pretty much am not a ding dong, an idiot. I knew what this meant. And. All I turned to my dad and said was like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I just kept repeating those words. It was like I was on like speed. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And just my whole life was flashing before me and all these things I still wanted to accomplish. And I was still planning my race season. And here I was being told I had cancer. And it was, I just remember my dad totally trying not to cry, not to shed any tears, because in that moment, he knew he needed to be the rock, and he just turned to me and was like, Jamie, remember a mustard seed. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because I can't like <laughs> comprehend anything. I'm just like, I don't want to die, dad. And he just says, the mustard seed. And I was like, why are you bringing up a mustard seed? And this was like, since I was a kid, we've always talked about the mustard seed and having, you know, that if you have that size of faith that you can move a mountain. And he had to remind me of that because I was spiraling. And I, and it was like this instant, Like I just stopped. I stopped in my tracks and this peace overcame me. And I was like, you're right, dad, you're right. I just have to have faith. And I remember I'm a very visual person. So I was like, dad, can you bring me, go to the grocery store and I want you to bring me some mustard seeds. And he was like, okay, I'm on it. So like that night he left and he comes back the next day. And meanwhile, I've had to like now share with people, like I have cancer and doesn't look like I'm going to return to racing right now. And I got to fight for my life. And he comes back the next day and he hands me this little box. And I was like, dad, what is this? And he was like, well, open it up. And I was like, why are you handing me a box? And he's because I'm bringing you what you asked me for. And I was like, dad, did you seriously put a mustard seed in this box? Like I asked for a jar and he was like, just open it up. And so I opened it up and I just started crying because inside it was a cross, and in that cross was a mustard seed. So that it was something I could wear every day, and be reminded that all I needed was to have faith the size of that mustard seed, and everything would be okay. And so, like, I still have that mustard seed or that cross. It hangs in my room because I'm so paranoid to lose it. But it's such a visual for me of that's all you need, and you can move mountain.
1: How hard was that, like, on your faith to go from? winning races winning medals to now be like i may never get a chance to do this again what was that like for you
0: for me i'd say my faith has always been super solid and i will totally give the credit to like my grandma and my dad and my mom and just really good circle of people in my life that have always had a solid legit faith and any time i start to freak out God has always placed people in my life that have been able to say, keep your focus where it should be. So I don't feel like I ever got mad at God. I never questioned him. In fact, he put, I have several pastor friends, but one of the pastor friends was like, Jamie, God has created a platform here for you. And after this, your platform is going to be up here. And he was like, you're going to be able to speak to so many more people. And I really owned that because when I accepted Christ so many years ago, we talk about putting the armor on and protecting ourselves. The thing is, when you accept Christ, you're you're living with purpose. And that means something to me. It means that God has placed me on this earth to do a job. And that job is like being part of his army. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I don't get to choose what that is because he knows better than me. And so I really owned that I was going to go through something really hard. And that he was going to be there for me. And, it, and there were times where, you know, I imagine if God had this like beard, <laughs> I was probably like hanging on to that beard with everything that I had. But that's the thing is I never felt alone. I never blamed him or questioned him. I owned what I was going through and was like. If this helps one person in my lifetime, then it was 100% worth it. And like I've seen, and it hasn't been just one person. I've had so many people come to me sharing stories of because you were so open about your faith and you were, you gave him the credit that like I had lost my way and I found my way to Christ. And those are the kinds of things that like literally give me chills and goosebumps. And I know I went through that to then become a mom of my twin boys and my two bonus kids. And I know that now I have an opportunity to raise them, to walk that same path and live with purpose and continue to spread who Jesus is. So, yeah. <laughs>
1: I did a podcast recently. It was called Gifts for Glory. They had me on there as a guest. And he said, he he sent me the, the pre-show notes. He said, I'm going to ask you seven questions, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. And I was like, great, this is insane. But I said, well, just let the Holy Spirit run with it. Whatever comes out is just what is going to come out of it. And one of the questions was, if you could go back and change something, would you do it? And I said, no, I wouldn't because my testimony has been able to help other people. And I don't take credit for that. Because the whole reason I have the testimony I have is because I was hard-headed and didn't listen to God and ran in the wrong direction. So it's allowed me to speak to a certain demographic and population of people that God has put in my sphere and put in my sphere of influence. I wouldn't go back and change it because I don't know what would happen to them. Right. That person who I've seen all these like superhero movies and TV shows where they time travel and think like crazy things happen when they do it. I'm like, I don't know what's, if you go back in the past and change this, I don't know what's gonna happen to this person's life in the future. That's the little
0: kid. Exactly how I feel. I don't want to, I don't want to live with regrets. I live with lessons, lesson learned. And I, and it's like you said, I don't ever want to change anything because what if that changed the path to where I'm at today? I love my life. I always have, no matter how hard it's been, because all of that, all of the hardships have shaped who I am today. And they make for such a better story. I, your story could be, okay, I was born and I dug a hole and then I died and mine is, oh my gosh. So I had this happen and I had this happen and now I have these twin boys and it's, and I love to tell stories. I love to share. So for me, I'm just like, oh, it's another thing, another way I can relate to someone and more to my story. So I'm totally with you on that.
1: No, and I appreciate your just willingness to even share this because this, the story didn't end for you here. So they, you found out you had, you found out you had cancer, you found out you were diagnosed with this or excuse me, diagnosed with cancer, what took place after that? What were the next, I guess, several years of your life like after that?
0: Oh man, so much happened. So much happened in the span of a year because with sarcomas, because mine was a spindle cell sarcoma, they're very rare and they're very deadly. And you have it's total resection. If they don't get all of it out, it will grow back. And that's exactly what happened. They tried not to take a huge margin because it would mean take, in taking important things. So they took as much as they could. And then within two and a half months, it was the size of a grapefruit again. And that's when it gets scary because now I've learned <laughs> 15 years later that my odds dropped from 80% survival to 20 or 15%. Wow. So, yeah. So talk about like hitting hard times. Like in mind, I tell you, after the first surgery, I woke up and I was in that moment, I had what's called drop foot. So I, had to learn to walk again, because they had to take a huge chunk of my nerve. And it was my sciatic nerve, which is what controls your ability to move your foot, pick it up. And all of my glute and my hamstring were now just gone, gone, unable to work. So I had half my quad and my knee, which the doctors were pretty surprised my knee could bend. So I went through this process of learning how to walk again. Life's good. I'm adjusting to being disabled, trying to figure out life. And then they hit me with the news two months later, just as I was getting ready to start radiation, or I think I was four days into radiation that your cancer's back. And I was, it was like one of those where I was like, okay, so what's the plan? What do we do? How do we fight this? And then the sinking realization of I could die. And once again, it's, wait a minute, this can't be the end of my story. And there was a lot of like conversations with God of, I'm pretty sure this is just another road that you're taking me down. And I believe I'm still, I'm going to be here. (laughs) So I'm trusting that I'm coming through through, through this on the other side. So we schedule surgery after another 26 days of radiation. And I wake up from that one missing my entire glute at this point. They had cut me in the front and the back. So it was a way worse surgery. And I was really having a hard time recovering from that one. So I went home after nine days and I started getting really sick. I started getting a fever and I refused to go back to the hospital. I was like, I'm tired of the hospital. I just really don't want to see these people again. I'm just going to stay home. And my ex-husband was growing very concerned because anytime you have fevers after surgery, you got to go back. And so he calls the doctor, calls me at home and was like, we really need you to come back. And my... The thing is like where I live and where I was getting treatment is it's like a two and a half hour drive. I'm having to go to San Francisco for all these specialists. So they call me and they're like, please come back. We know it's hard. We know that you've gone, you're going through a lot, but we need you to come back. And at this point, my temperature was about 102. By the time I had gotten to the hospital, it was 103 they had a room waiting for me. I was admitted and it spiked to 104 and I completely passed out. And it turned out that I was in sepsis. And they pretty much told me once I came to and was trying to figure out where I was because when you, when your body's in sepsis, it's very bad. And it's called the silent killer. People often die from entering into sepsis. And so I was on the verge of that. They basically told me had I decided to stay home, I might not have survived. So I was very grateful (laughs) that I went back and then they had to do all kinds of tests and make sure like my heart hadn't been affected. I have to, I had to go on a pick line. What it was is my kidney was unable to drain to my bladder because of all the surgeries I'd had and all of the radiation. It made it like cement in there. And I had a lot of scar tissue and it just had done a lot of damage. So it took legit probably about three or four months to fight that off because then they also thought I got a bone infection. So I was walking around with this like pick line. I had a limp and I was on a walker. <laughs> And I was like down to 98 pounds. So I was, and I'm like 120 race weight. So I was super skinny, super sickly and living with this weird nephrostomy drain out of my back. And all I wanted to do was get on my bike. And literally from the time that I was first diagnosed with cancer, I kept saying, I want to get back on the bike. And then I found out I was disabled. I want to get back on the bike. And then I got cancer again. I want to get back on the bike and I got sepsis. And this is where I kid you not, I threw my hands up in the air and I was like, okay, God, I am tired of saying what I want. So here's the deal. I'm just going to try to survive and live. And then when you're ready to allow me back on the bike, I'll be ready. That's good. (laughs) And I stopped, I stopped trying to get back on the bike. And it was a good thing because I want to say, I probably maybe said it one more time. And I had gone in to to have my kidney removed, so I'd had a third surgery. We had my kidney put into my right pelvic area. Two weeks after that surgery, I got really sick again, and I swore up and down that my cancer had come back. I was like, oh, no, it spread. It's in my stomach. This is what happens. This is what happens with sarcomas. Once again, like, I'm dying. (laughs) So we go to the emergency room because the doctors tell me just go because they needed they wanted to make sure the kidney was okay. So I go, and I I do have to admit, I probably did say, I want to get back on the bike at this point. <laughs> and as I'm in the ER, they're running all their normal tests and they come back and they say, we know what's wrong with you. And I was like, well, how? You haven't done a CT scan of all you've done is take my urine. Mm. And they were like, we know what's wrong with you. I was like, what? And she was like, you're pregnant. Wow. And, I was, like, what? and <laughs> I was like, you need to test me again. There is no way. And I literally think I said, how? And she looked at me like, I'm not going to explain the birds and the bees to you. <laughs> but she was like, I'll test you again. And as she went and ran the test again, I remembered as I was talking to my husband, oh, I remember that one time right before surgery. And he was like, oh my gosh. And sure enough, it came back and we were like, you're still pregnant. Well, then we knew I was pregnant during the surgery, like three days pregnant. So wow. they took me back, did an ultrasound. And they were like, oh, it's viable. And by the way, you're having twins. Wow. And I legit was like, okay, God, you're funny. Like you're really funny. And that was the point to which I was like, okay, I'm never getting back on the bike unless it truly is what you want. And that is when I put it in his hands. 100%. That was I'm funny.
1: Not, <laughs> I'm not judging you. Cause I thought, I flat out, remember, I just told you a little bit ago, I learned the hard way. Okay. My head might as well just be a solid rock. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs>
0: Right.
1: So you found out that you were pregnant with twins. So your journey is continuing because there's, I know that you, now I know the end of this story because (laughs) I know what happened after you had the children. So if you want to walk everyone through that process and just tell them about the rest of your journey and how you ended up back in sports, back in competing again, and then to whatever degree you want to dive into that.
0: Okay. Yeah, no. I So at that point, now I'm pregnant. And there were complications to that. At 27 weeks, I went into labor. I was now hospitalized again. I was like racking up the frequent flyer miles for adults. And I was there for seven and a half weeks. They were able to keep the boys in. They were born and they had to live two weeks in the hospital. And I, I knew my focus was now being a mom. It doesn't come with a parent manual. There's no instruction manual. There's this, how do you parent? And then have a disability and totally completely lose my identity. I was no longer racing or anything. And it was such a hard time. My my kids were good. Like when I look at other babies these days, I'm like, wow, like I had twins and it was really hard because I had twins, but they were very good babies. They weren't really colicky. We were on a routine because I like routines and I like plans, but it was just, constantly bathing two kids, constantly feeding two kids, constantly changing two diapers. And I had a lot of help from my dad. He was a savior. But when they were about a year old, like throughout that whole year, people had been contacting me all the time because at this point I could not ride a bike because of how I was dis- disabled. There was nothing out there that would allow me to use the leg that was had so much paralysis to it. So when they were about a year old, this guy... Was doing Xterra and I was there for whatever reason and and I saw his brace and I was just like, where did you get that? And he put me in contact with these people. I went out and I got one, and I remember the day I came home with that brace and went out for my first bike ride on a tandem in three years. And I had like my race braids. I had my Michelin jersey. I was all decked out. And literally, we were just going for a cruise around the neighborhood. But I was like, it's freedom. This is the first time. This is fantastic. And we went for a full hour, which led to my first mountain bike ride three days later. And I fell over so many times because I can't clip in and out on my own. But then that led to me doing my first triathlon, getting invited to the Leadville 100, which has always been on my bucket list. Never imagined I'd be doing it with a disability, with one and a quarter legs. But that kind of, as people started discovering that I was starting to ride again, but I didn't quite have the Lance Armstrong story because I was now disabled and in a different category. I had always known about the Challenged Athletes Foundation because XTERRA was a huge contributor to to raising money for them at our races. So several people had contacted me, including Bob Babbitt, who's one of the co-founders of that charity. And way back in the day in the hospital, he had said, Jamie, there's always the Paralympics. And for those of you that don't know what the Paralympics is, it basically is Exactly the same as the Olympics, but for all people with physical disabilities. So whether you're visually impaired, you're in a wheelchair, or you have a missing arm or a missing leg, there's so many different sports and each sport has its own way of categorizing like how you're disabled. So my disability can't fit into certain sports, but it can fit into say cycling. So. The cycling coaches, the Paralympic cycling coaches had contacted me and knew I used to be a professional athlete and invited me out to a race. So about a month before Leadville, I went out and did nationals and won my category and it was like this whole new world had opened. I then went and completed Leadville and my I did earn the little belt buckle. So I had completed it in under 12 hours, which is huge. And I was one of the first female athletes with a disability to conquer that course. But it was in 2013. So I think it's a total of now five years after my initial diagnosis, I had made the C team, the development team for Paralympic cycling. And that literally just catapulted. Like I was so stoked that I had always dreamed of going to the Olympics as an able-bodied athlete. And now there was an opportunity on the table. I could go as a Paralympian. And to me, it meant so much more because I wasn't just returning to be a great athlete again. I was returning to be an athlete while having a disability. And I had this huge platform and all these doors that God had a hand in. And that's what was, I think the most powerful for me was knowing that like, I literally was on a deathbed and God had never left me. And he was just, it was like, man, when he opened up the doors, it was like floodgates and they just kept opening. And it was just this incredible feeling to know that all of that was because of him. It was nothing that I did. It was 100% him saying, "Nope, Jamie, this is where you're going," and I just followed that path mm. and always tried to keep my eyes focused on him.
1: So, as a Paralympian, how? What, tell for anyone who doesn't know, like what your success what was like.
0: Okay, so first. It's a whole new world. I'm now in cycling. You're now like you put everything on the line for four years. For me, as an Xterra athlete or mountain biker, we have world championships every year. And we did have world champ. We do have world championships in, in paracycling, but where you make your money and where you get your sponsorships is making it to the Paralympics and doing well there. And it's growing. It's a growing sport, or a go- I should say it's growing. It's a lot of sports, but it's a movement. So the Paralympic movement is growing. And for me to enter that world and see all of these other people that were so similar to me and having disabilities. Like when I go home, I'm the only one with a disability. I'm the only one that has a limp when I walk. But when I go on these trips, like I'm surrounded by people that are, I don't stick out anymore. I now blend in and we all, it's like a culture. And But it's also hard because some people haven't quite adjusted to their disabilities. And it's also cycling and sometimes Sports in general can be very dark and negative. And there's lots of testimonies where soccer players talk about that, like how dark their sport is, because there's push pushes to do what it takes at all costs to win. And so, as an athlete, when you are a follower of Christ, like I'm a super positive, happy person, and I'm being thrown into being around people that are very negative and very just down and they cursed a lot. And just the culture is like not something I'm used to. And so the dynamic of that, and then trying to be like the best in my sport to go to the Paralympics was really hard. Like I had to rely a lot on sports psychology and my faith because not only that, but there were people on my team that literally knew I was a Christian because I was one of the first Christians on this team. And I prayed, for God to bring more teammates because they were so hard on me and they were so mean and they would corner me and they would ask me very controversial questions that were very inappropriate just to get a rise out of me. And it was like, to the point, like sometimes I would start tearing up because I knew nothing I said would change who they were. And one time I was in an airport and they were coming down on me. Like, do you believe everything in the Bible? And just, asking me really hard questions. And and I just sat there frozen, but in my head praying, like, please God, like they do this to me all the time. I need help. And no joke, two complete strangers. And these guys didn't even know each other, but one guy stood up and just started coming at these guys in a very loving way, but to my defense. And then this guy came over here and was like, have you ever read the case for Christ? And it was like, they came to my rescue. So the struggle of being a paracyclist athlete was so incredibly hard. But anytime I needed it, I swear like God was there. He was he was just there. And slowly but surely, more and more guys started showing up that were Christians. And we began this paracycling Bible study group. And it was so powerful. I started looking forward to that more than I looked forward to racing, right? And I love competition. But it was such a joy for me to see what something I had prayed for be there just like everything else. Like my whole life has always been like when I've prayed for it, it may not be what, like, it might not always be what I envisioned, right? It's always better because God knows more than me. So so here I am on this path of dealing with what I call like evil (laughs) and good while trying to stay grounded in wanting to win this. I wanted to win a gold medal and I wanted to win it because I was like, What a story, what a testimony. And the thing is, it doesn't matter if you win. It really doesn't. But in in the world that we live in, you need credibility. If you want someone in sports to listen to you, you need to be good at your sport for them to listen to you, to have that platform. And it sucks sometimes, right? Because people have great testimonies whether they win gold medals or not. But people listen to people that win. And so it's this dynamic of where, I made. I qualified, I made it to the Paralympic Games, and I had four opportunities to win a gold medal. And I remember needing to put myself in a bubble to make sure that I raced for the right reason because I didn't want to win at all costs. I wanted to win to give God the glory. I wanted it to be his story and not mine. So I can remember journaling every day, having my Bible verses, really staying focused, in my very first race, I got second on the velodrome. My next race, I'm not a sprinter, so I didn't do as well. And I remember the second place that I had won, you could not wipe the smile off my face. I was so ecstatic. This was like fantastic. I got to be on a podium. I got this medal. Like, I was just a dream come true. And then my third race, which I was favored to win, was the TT. And I just, I didn't have a good race. My, I had some mechanical issues. Just didn't have it that day. Six people showed up better than me. And... I had one opportunity left and I remember going into my devotional time and praying to God and saying, God, like I've done everything I could do. I am fitter. I'm the fittest I've ever been. I'm I'm strategically have three different plans to win this race. I said, but at the end of the day, it's your will. What do you want for me? And I just remember having that peace. And the weirdest thing is I went to bed that night. I dreamt I had won. I woke up the next morning thinking it was real. And I was freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, I just dreamt I won. Is that like a good omen or a bad omen? And I had to like really be like, God, oh, please just don't let this interfere with like my mental game. And the race itself, the way it unfolded wasn't like any other race I had done the four years I had been racing up to this one. It was, we had stayed as a group. We couldn't shake anyone. And I kept going, God, like, when do I know when to go? This is going to come down to a sprint. And I don't, I'm not a sprinter. I usually drop people on the hills. That's my jam. And I was just like, God, like, I need your help. And so while tactically all these things are going on, I'm like in my head talking to God. And we had entered our last hill and dropped down into this turn. And I went out into front And I got a huge gap on everyone because it was raining out. People were timid in the turns. And I was like, we got 2K to go. (laughs) The finish line is coming. We got to make our move. And I had gapped them, but I also knew it was a headwind and it was two kilometers. So the two gals caught up to me. It was the German and the Chinese gal. And I had fallen behind them. And it was, this is where it becomes like poker and chess. I'm in the back, like, breathing hard, faking it because I was just like, I don't want him to think like I have a lot left. So I go to the back, I'm hiding from the wind and they're pulling, they're just pulling hard. And I'm going, God, we're running out of real estate. Like, when do I go? When do I go? And so the German gal goes to the right. So I go to the left and I see the sign that says like 500 meters. And I was like, oh no, I'm like, God, if I sprint too soon, like I'm gonna be toast. If I sprint too late, I'm gonna lose it. And so I was like, when do I go? And then all of a sudden this 200 meter sign pops up and it was like it load or something. I don't know, (laughs) but I just got this feeling that God was like, you need to go now, there's your sign. And so I just took off and I sprinted and I crossed that finish line in first, like by a hair. And it was, I, I will never truly be able to describe that feeling that my kids were there watching it but it was this feeling of I did this because of you, God, just everything, the whole journey, my career before being sick, the lowest of the lows and knowing that like I had always held on to God and I'd always held on to my faith that like I felt like and I'm like getting all tearied up now, but I felt like that gold medal was like God. God's our father. He's our he's my dad. And I was like, here's my gold medal. Like, this is you. This is all you and no part of me even to this day feels like I won that. I feel like it was just God God had that path and I was just on it following what he wanted me to do. <laughs> so, it was incredible. <laughs> so cool.
1: You have you have a powerful testimony of just overcoming and keep keeping your faith in Christ and just staying focused on the Lord. So to anyone who has any kind of like platform, what advice would you give to them just to keep Christ first and keep the focus on God versus putting it on themselves or letting that platform just go to their heads? What advice would you give them?
0: Yeah, and that's the hardest thing because I know many a times in my career where, yeah, winning took a priority. And I I always say, I feel like I was lucky because God was like, boom, and it would knock me upside the head and humble me. But the biggest thing is, a pastor once told me a dirty, bi- a dusty Bible equals a dirty life, That's And, and it, it, right? It's so powerful because if you're not in his word, like truly in his word, g- your life, it's, it's going to get dirty. You're going to allow all the distractions of the world, what the world is telling you to creep in. And so for me, anytime. I have felt that my heart wasn't in the right place or my or it was more of my head because I feel like my heart's always been there but when my head starts to like get caught up in the world or get caught up in the I need to win, I need to feel that again or I need more money or I need this or I need that. I always I just ground myself and I have I have a few ver- verses that really pull me back into it and one of them is like the Philippians 4:13 which I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I think having kids has helped me tremendously because I'm their role model and I believe that my action should always speak louder than anything else. I can say till like I'm blue in the face, but if I show my kids through how I react to things, how I respond, how I lean on God, then that's how they're going to see that strength. And I think that's just it is when you've been at the ultimate bottom, God yeah. You're only holding on to God like you you have to like because there's just you just have to. And I don't know how to bottle this up, but it is just if you have to write down verses, if you have to put things like. If you can see up there, like there's my reminder every morning I wake up. That's my like, I can all, I can do all things. And it's putting those verses up and it's having those things. When I used to race, I used to have a cross on my thing. I used to have powered by God written on my thing. I have the Christian fish socks. I have, I like to remind myself because man, the more that you have a testimony, the more Satan's going to come after you. And that's what I tell my kids. When you have a bad day, that's Satan. I want to be the kind of person that wakes up every morning. And when my feet hit the floor, Satan's going, oh crap, she's awake. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, but <laughs> let me tell you some days I go, go to bed and I'm just crushed. Right. Like right. I'm like, it was so exhausting. And I pray, well, tomorrow will be a better day. And it's always like just that mentality of, I refuse to give up. Like, I don't let my kids give up. I'm like, nope, if you start something, you finish. I don't care if you're last. I don't care if you suck at it, but you start it, you finish it. Because I feel like that's been crucial to my life of if I start something, I'm going to finish it. And so my whole thing is God just, it's like I have this guilty feeling if I don't put God first, (laughs) if I'm not leaning on him. And again, I'm going to humble myself in saying that, like, I screw up a lot. Like, I'm like, I have a plan. It's this. I get flustered. I get upset when it doesn't go right. But I'm thankful for the people in my life that are like, well, maybe that was for a reason. Maybe that car was going slow this morning because you missed an accident. You don't know. And and it's that constant reminder. And I think that's where the fellowship comes in having those friends that you can have those reminders and be that person that helps your friends through that kind of stuff. So read the Bible be in the Bible, have your verses, have your go-to verses. I try to journal when I know I'm going to be around negative situations and then having my go-to people that I can go to when I'm struggling. And they're going to be like, I got my pastor on speed dial. Be speed dial. Let me tell you, I'm like, pastor David, it's hard right now. (laughs) And he's Jesus first, Jamie, Jesus first.
1: (laughs) We're not meant to go through this walk alone. Like we are, we are, interdependent upon one another. So having that circle of just believers and having that circle of a support system, it's critical in our walk with God, because sometimes this walk is not easy. This is not an easy path. The straight, narrow path is not always an easy path because of the attack, because of our flesh.
0: That's true. It's true. And we can be, and we can't, we are vulnerable and we are weak often, right? And Satan knows our weaknesses. And that's the thing is he always preys on him. I all I can tell whenever I'm getting sick because I feel defeated. Like when I'm feeling run down, low of energy, I, that's when Satan's going to come. And I and so I think also to I view the world as we're at war. My son is huge into World War II, so it's very easy. But like we we are. Like you have good and you have evil. Watch any movie out there. Those are the best movies. Lord of the Rings, whatever. It's good and evil. It's always good and evil. So for me, it's like I want to be on the good side. So I'm always battling evil. And every negative thing out there is like evil. So how do I counter that? How do I be positive even when someone is not being kind to me? And those are always our challenges, right? How do you love someone that is just awful? So that brings me to another thing. So after I win the gold medal, ultimate high, life's going good. I had gone to a camp with a few of my buddies, the Bible study buddies through my team, And it was like these four, like just strong, godly men. And I was so moved by their testimonies because each night we would have a Bible study and we'd share. And during the day we'd ride our bikes and we'd have meals together and stuff. And I was so moved by like how they were such godly men. And I was like, I want my boys to grow up and to be strong like you guys. And I came home from that trip and my ex-husband At the time, who was my husband at the time was like, yeah, I want a divorce. And I was like coming home off of this ultimate high of we need to work on our marriage. Like we got to start doing more Bible stuff together because what happened was I felt like my faith was always growing and my like just being a Christian was evolving and he wasn't and he was wanting to be stuck in these ways. And there was this huge conflict because I am so faith driven and he was like that in the beginning. And then it just didn't, it didn't happen. He turned to other things to deal with like my illness and whatnot. And so I was like, no, we have to work on this. We've been married for 17 years and I refuse to give up. And it and he it was like, no. And then it was just gut punch after gut punch and finding out that he was like had been seeing another woman and was just like ready, like he was out. Like he was out, didn't want to work on it. And over cancer, going through divorce was probably, hands down, harder. It was harder because there was nothing I, well, actually, there was nothing I could do with cancer either. But you can't control what another person does. And for the first time in my life, like, I've always viewed failure as a way to be stronger and better. And for the first time, I felt like a failure in God's eyes. Like, somehow, I wasn't a good enough wife. Or I should have done better. I should have been easier. I shouldn't have been so critical. I sh- All these I should have's. And I had to go through counseling and I picked a Christian counselor and I had to learn that there was nothing ever I could do. that There was just nothing I could do to change my ex-husband. You can't change other people. That's God's job. He has to work in their lives. And the hardest thing is because I see the potential in everyone and I see what how great everyone can be. And to have that realization, that's maybe not what he wanted was really hard for me to sit with. And so then looking at my two boys who they're now they were seven years old at the time. And I'm going to be a single mom and I've got to raise you. And the way that I'm going to raise you is going to be completely different from the things that your dad is going to introduce you to. And so it's been this path of like really making sure my children were grounded even more so than I was in knowing who Jesus was and knowing what the truth was, because like their dad would say one thing and then I would say another. And I remember one of them going, I don't know who to believe. And I said, well, first of all, I have never lied to you. But I was <laughs> like, then open up the Bible. And I lit- I told That's them, good. I said, if you ever doubt something being said, then you go to the Bible because there is always truth in the Bible. Because I understand you got your mom and your dad, who do you believe? So go to the Bible. And I would have them open up and read the things in there. And I look at the two young men, because they're now 13, that they have become and the things that they, the discrepancies they see between things I do and things their dad does. And I'm telling you, like God in their lives has made a huge impact. Like they are so grounded at 13 and they know, like they know amongst their friends, things that go on at school, that God is the way, Jesus is the way. And that's that we're on his army. (laughs) We're in his army. So, wow, a lot.
1: (laughs) I'm gonna have to get you back on here because I have 35 more questions. I just, I'm happy
0: to to do it. I'm gonna have to
1: get you back on here. We're gonna have to do a whole Bible study on here on what it means to be an overcomer. But I love what you said because you pointed them back to scripture, you pointed them back to the word of God and said, Let's look for this truth in his word, let's take what you hear and let's weigh it against the gospel. And I think that is so important in discipleship that when you're that when you're pouring into someone or you're meeting with people that you say, look, this is what may be on me to share with you. Don't take my word for it. Let's see what the Bible says against it. And just even having that spirit of just humility and honesty and realizing, look, I'm just a vessel. Sometimes I get it wrong, but let's look at what I just said and let's weigh it up against scripture. That is incredible. So I, I give you So many props for that because when people, I've said this on this podcast so often, when people come to me for anything, I point them back to the cross. I point them to the resurrection. I point them back to the person who has the answers for their life. We don't want them to be dependent on us because in our flesh, we are going to fail at some point, or sometimes we're just tired and we get it wrong, or maybe we don't have the answers, but we have the source that has all the answers. We're plugged into it
0: hundred percent. That's the thing. I tell my boys, the only person to ever walk this earth perfect was Jesus. And I am so not Jesus. I am your mom and I will fail, (laughs) but this Bible will never fail you. God will never fail you. You might not get the answer you want. Just like you might ask me and I might say, no, that's God's the same way. Like he's your father. He's your first and foremost parent because having had cancer, I always live with this. What if I were to die? You know what I mean? And it's more so now. Back when I first started this journey, if I died, well, I get to go to heaven. That's exciting. But like, I have two 13 year old boys. I have two bonus kids. One, she's a daughter that's 13 and now another son that's 11. And I think, oh my gosh, I can't go yet. Like, I have so much to keep, like, staring them on the straight and narrow path. Like, yeah. you know, I have so much to teach them and lead them. And, and so there is that, well, if I were to die, and I always tell my boys, if I were to die, Don't ever be mad at God. He just needed me. And you've got to figure it out. And I've taught you everything. Like you, you will be okay, but keep your faith on him. And I'll be watching you.
1: (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Mom is always watching. Don't think that she's not.
0: (laughs) Right? I know. They're like, oh my gosh, mom. But no, we have a lot of fun and it's fun. Like we, I do things with them where we'll be driving in the car And if they're telling me about someone they don't like or someone that's being mean to them at school, I'll tell them, well, we should pray for that person. And let me tell you something. When my kid was five and I would tell him that he would say, mom, no, I am (laughs) not praying for her. (laughs) She is mean. And and he was a really adamant in it. But like over time when they've aged up and they've gotten to these different places in life, I've been able to sit and they've had someone that was like a super problematic, problematic, like a year ago. And now that person is like growing up a little and they're kinder or they're nicer. And I always say now, just imagine if you like started praying for everyone, like you would start giving all of those people opportunities to be better or at least just pray for them. And I say, because here's the deal. If you stoop to their level, it's going to harden your heart and it's going to make you be just like them. And then you like you're the bad guy. And I said, but if you pray for them, maybe they don't change, but your heart will always change. And then that's where your heart is going to stay softer. Because I know going through divorce, let me tell you, I was like, I knew someday I would forgive my ex. Like I knew I would, but, and I hate to use these words, but I had such hatred towards him. I felt so betrayed and so lied to, and there was so much anger That came with that. I would be sitting in my account, my therapist's office, and I would say, I know one day I will be stronger and I know everything will be okay and I will meet someone even better. But right now, I just really don't like him (laughs) from the get go. And I was like, and it did, it took like, a good two and a half years for me to be at a place that I could forgive what had transpired and what had gone on. And we can communicate and I don't want to go hang out with them. But because I think there's still a little bit of hurt, but we have to have grace because I think of all the times I screw up and I don't want people to hold that against me forever. So learning to have grace, I think is one of the crucial things in life is People are not perfect. It's as you said, people are not perfect. We are going to screw up. And the more that my kids can see me admitting my failures, they don't put me on a pedestal and think, oh my gosh, mom's perfect. They know mom is not perfect, but I do my best.
1: It's, you said so much good stuff there. I just, when you, but I love everything you said, despite like on top of the lessons you were teaching your kids, I love the fact that you were willing to go and get help from the Christian counselor, or Christian therapist, because it, it really just lends the fact that this is where I'm at. And I think that when we can honestly admit to where we are, that's a huge step in the healing process. It's, you know what? I do have roots of bitterness being sown. I don't like this person. I don't love this person. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just literally telling God, this is where I'm at. Help me. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. And I was very adamant and I wanted it to be a Christian counselor. Right. Right. Because you just have to be so careful these days. And he was good. Like he knew his stuff. And that and and I actually looked forward to going and talking with him and having these deep conversations. And he, as I like, peeled the onion layers out of like my childhood and everything. And I do remember I saw him for three years. And it was to a point where he was like, "Jamie, you don't need to come here anymore." <laughs> he was like, honestly, you're okay. Time to move on. You can still say hi to me whenever you want. <laughs> but it, so I laugh because I probably did go to him maybe a year past what I should have. But long story short, there there was an abusive relationship in between like my husband now and mm-hmm. my ex. And it was like to the extreme opposite of like my ex-husband. And he was so emotionally abusive. This is where like as Christians, we have to be so, so careful because he would often use God and he would belittle me and he would put me down and it would always be like, I don't know, it, it was just such an abusive use of God. And so, and even through that, this is why I feel like this is important because even through th- I didn't lose my faith in God. Because I knew he was a person and he was just misusing God. It, he It was like he was manipulating him. And luckily I had that counselor because that counselor was like, Jamie, this is so unhealthy. And that counselor had met that guy because I had invited him to a session. And he was like, I'm very worried. I'm concerned about you. And luckily I had such a relationship with that counselor and even my dad. And all these people were super concerned with me. And But nobody knew how to help me, right? Because I think I was so low feeling about myself after the divorce that was carrying over into this relationship. And I felt that's what I deserved. And thank the Lord, I got out of it. And then I met my husband and this is over five years span now. So I want to say maybe about two years later, I met my husband now and you know, he'd grown up in the church in a Catholic church. And but my faith was here and he met me and it was like, He just started wanting to dive into the word and strengthening his faith because he had lost it. He was a widower and he had lost his faith. And upon meeting me, it was like this breath of fresh air in and finding his faith. And then he has these two kids that now their faith is growing. And this is where I'm saying, like, it's our job to make disciples of others and be that person that goes out and lives with purpose. And I just think of all these people and so those are between my four kids and husband, that's five people. And now if they go each find a person, that's 10 people that you're able to touch. And if those people find another person, and then that's how we grow. We grow one at a time. We grow by one more. And I I always get like chills when you start yeah. thinking about how it can go. <laughs> you're just like, we can do good. Go team God.
1: <laughs> Look at God working all things together for the good of those who love them. There we go. There we go. So you obviously besides doing these podcasts like your testimony is just an inspiration to so many people. So what advice would you give to someone who has big dreams and they may start living out those dreams but then they start facing obstacles?
0: Right. Be grounded in God. We be open to what God's plan is for you versus what you think <laughs> you want to do. Like I also talk about how or I put it into perspective of we're all puzzle pieces. Okay, if you're a puzzle piece, I'm a puzzle piece. Like every person is a puzzle piece. And until you start putting puzzle pieces together, you don't know what it looks like, right? And when you live life that way of I'm a puzzle piece, but I don't see the whole picture, you're more open to where God's gonna lead you. It's almost like every day waking up saying, okay, God, what are you gonna have me do today? What is your will for me today? And when you live a life like that- Obstacles aren't obstacles, right? That's your path that day. And lean on Jesus. Like through those obstacles, lean on Jesus and know that obstacle is being placed before you because you need that. For whatever reason, you may not know till 40 years from now, but whatever reason, like I fully believe me getting sepsis and almost dying was the reason I was able to have my twin boys because I was supposed to do chemo and I was too sick to ever do chemo. And had I done chemo, I would not have had, I would not have been able to conceive children. So like, when you look at, I didn't understand at that time, why I had to get sick again and why I got sepsis until I got pregnant and was like, that's why. And when you live life thinking that obstacles don't become obstacles, they became, they become opportunities to grow. (laughs) That's
1: so good. I have one more question for you. And I'm just because I will never experience this. So I'm just very curious what your take is on this. What did it feel like to win a gold medal after working for it so hard and like for your entire life? What was that moment like for you?
0: It see, that's what's so hard to put into words. And I think more so because I was there for God. I was there because of God. Yeah. And so it was a moment where like inside inside my heart when I crossed that finish line first I did this like there's this picture of me like doing this fist bump and it was this fist bump it was like my conversation to God when I used to race I would always like do this when I'd come across the finish line first in Xterra and that fist bump was like dude, we did it we did it God like we did it like I put the work in but you created that pathway and I don't have you ever done something where you knew your parents were proud? That I feel I feel like God was smiling down on me. and it the only way I can describe it, it was a moment between where I just felt so much presence from God that everything I had gone through just it like it it made sense in that moment getting that gold medal, being so sick, being in so much pain, becoming disabled, losing one career to start another. It's like crazy how it just all fast forwards boom to that moment. And you're now seeing the big picture, all those puzzle pieces that went together that I didn't understand when I was going through them and struggled and had hard times. It was just, and it all culminated to this one moment of, oh my gosh, and there'll never be another moment like that. Even if you win another gold medal, will never be like that. And it's almost, like I don't want it to, I always want that. So yes, it's time to yeah. do something different. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so so it's hard to put into words other than it was the moment that I got to share with God. That was where I saw all of the puzzle pieces come together.
1: <laughs> you, How is, and I'm curious about this now, how is your health now? Because you are an inspiration to everyone, especially those who are just happen to be over 40 or getting ready to kick 40s door down. I'm not speaking <laughs> for myself. I'm talking about a friend of mine. So how is your health <laughs> right now?
0: So it's good. I actually get to celebrate 15 years. So come March 28th will be my 15 anniversary of being disabled. And July 14th will be my 15 years cancer free. And I always call it like my bonus years, my extra years, my, my gift, my 15 years of a gift from God, because my story very easily could have ended then. But it's one of those I'm like, okay, it's 15 years, I really need to write this book. (laughs) Because there I feel like there are so many people that I can relate to now. I never knew, I just never understood divorce. My parents were divorced and I never understood, never walked that path, could never relate. And now I can. And I think, oh my gosh. Like anytime I hear somebody getting divorced, like it brings back all those feelings. The same with cancer. Anytime I just lost a friend almost two years ago this summer, very dear friend of mine, one of my best friends to breast cancer. And I walked that path, that journey with her for three years. And she was someone that in the end, she was like, I haven't prayed since I was a kid, Jamie. And I was at her bedside in the hospital. You can pray now. Like God wants to hear from you. So yeah, it's just been an incredible journey. And I... Oh man, I'm so thankful. I'm just so thankful for all of the paths and obstacles and challenges that I've been able to overcome. And yeah, 46 years old, I am almost 47 in May and I am taking up sit skiing right now. And if, for those of you that don't know, sit skiing, like I can't stand up and ski normally because my leg doesn't function enough. So I have to sit in a bucket and I ski using my arms and only my arms and I have never done a sport where my arms were the primary thing that propelled me forward. So it's so hard, but at the same time, it's so exciting. And I'm like, okay, God, let's see where this can go. Can I be any good at 46 years old, learning a new sport using new muscle groups? Can I make it to another Paralympics? I don't know, but it'll be quite the journey. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> to see if I can.
1: Wow. I am cheering for you. And so is my friend who's almost 40. I'm just, we are cheering for you. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> Age is relevant. See, cause I'm closer to, I'm closer to 50 now than I am 40. And I remember being a kid thinking, Oh man, that is old. And now I'm on the other side of it. And I'm like, it's so not old. I'm living to be a hundred and something. I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> I, I don't want to live that long. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm ready for heaven right now. But I agree with you. I'm turning 40 in April. But I feel better now than I did in my 20s. I lost. I didn't get it. I didn't tell you this before we came on. But part of my story is I lost 115 pounds. I was 315 pounds. I walk around between. I probably walk around between 200 and 210, give or take a holiday season. So. <laughs> But I feel better now than I have in my entire life. So it's crazy. And I tell people, because I talk to a lot of people and they say, well, I'm worried about turning 30. I said, my 30s were so much more rewarding than my 20s. It's not even comparable. Um, you develop more. I developed more of who I was, especially because I gave my life to Christ in the late, my late 20s. But that maturation process really kicked into gear in my 30s. That's
0: awesome. And I think wisdom, like you're so much more just aware of things, right, through through all of your experiences that you have a maturity and a growth (laughs) that you just could never have in your 20s, like just simply because you just hadn't lived long enough. It's those experiences. That's what I tell my kids. I'm like... You're so young, and you're a sponge, and you can read all the books or watch all the YouTubes, but until you experience these things, you will never have that. So, experience as much as you can. Get out there and try it all, and learn. Exactly.
1: Before yeah. we leave today, I have one more thing, if you wouldn't mind. I always ask the guests there, "Come, if you wouldn't mind praying for us before we head out, that would be a huge honor." So, if you wouldn't—Oh,
0: me would, pray? <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. If you don't mind, if not, I'll pray us out. It's entirely. I
0: know. A- I don't know. I, we, yeah, I'm the one that always prays at the dinner table. Okay. But it's never been like my gift, right? Because I hear people and I'm just like, oh, they're such amazing prayers. And then I'm over here, like, but like, I'm happy to do it because life's about doing the things that stretch you, bring you out of your comfort zone.
1: <laughs> I'm glad I can help get you out of your comfort zone.
0: <laughs> so we'll pray now.
1: That'll work. Thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. Dear Heavenly Father God, I just want to thank you so much for this time, this fellowship, for this opportunity to share my testimony and hear another. And God, I just pray that this message reaches someone out there and that changes their life and brings them closer to you. And God, I just pray that we continue to network out there and that we continue to grow like the Redwood and have roots that just work together and protect each other and god i pray that we always keep our focus on you and that we continue to be the light to others and in your name i pray amen
1: and father i just thank you for jamie i thank you for everything you're doing in her and through her lord lord i pray you just show her what's next just give her the vision and give her the grace to continue to fulfill the call that you have on her life father i thank you for just the blessing that she's been to our audience today and i thank you for the blessing she's going to continue to be to so many lord I just pray a hedge of protection around her and her family. And again, I just thank you for her. Yes. We just pray and ask all of these things in Jesus name. Amen.
0: Amen. See, that was so much better than mine.
1: <laughs> it's there. There is no such thing as better in prayer. As long as it comes from the heart, I assure you, I'm that person who like when I'm praying and nobody's around, you would think all I'd do is sit in the house and read the Bible. And then I go pray corporately. And say, bro, have you ever prayed a day in your life? So it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> Don't worry about <laughs> I it. I
0: know. I tell my kids to do and sometimes they have some like really amazing ones and yeah. i'm like why don't you do that more but right. yeah
1: it's hard <laughs> you know what i tell people god sees the heart and that's really all the is. as long as it comes from the heart that's all that matters but i i always tell people when i and i learned how to pray from going to corporate prayer sitting around people who learned how to pray or sitting around people who knew how to pray excuse me so right. that that was my trick i'm like i'm just gonna sit here and i'm just gonna listen to what they say and then i'm gonna figure this out. <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
1: Jamie, I like thank it. you so much for being on the show today. I will have to get you back on here in, in the future. I'm wishing you nothing but the best. And again, thank you so much for sharing your testimony of the Rooted in Christ podcast. We really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I had a blast and I am happy to come back anytime, Any answer any questions. My book is, my life is an open book.
1: <laughs> thank you so I'm much. happy to be it.
0: here. You are thank very you. welcome.
1: Have, enjoy the rest of your night and enjoy dinner.
0: Thank you. You too. (laughs) Bedtime for you.
1: Give me about another two hours. Give me another two two hours. hours.
0: (laughs) Okay. In two hours, have a good night. You too. Thank (laughs) you.